WWPP, what would Paul pray? How would Paul pray? I'll tell you how Paul prayed. Paul's prayer was driven by the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, that believers would be driven by the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul prayed. That is how Paul prayed. And Paul's prayer was for the Colossians and for you and me. Let us pray. Father, as we consider this prayer in these 14 verses, show us the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Show us that you've called us to live in light of who Christ is. You not only call us to that, but you empower us to live out of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to, you, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. You may be seated. I really miss Bud Hewitt. I miss Bud for many reasons, but chief among them is Bud's response to my annual performance review. On the annual performance review, if one indicated, the number one indicated a total dud, five indicated Jesus. But consistently, year after year, gave me fives. I miss that. <laughs> performance reviews are really helpful. They help you see where you're meeting or exceeding the standard. They also help you see, I call it weakness, but it's better to say areas of growth. And both are helpful. 
So we, we are encouraged, job well done, and we are challenged, you could do better. Paul's prayer is similar to a performance review. He starts out in his prayer by saying, Colossians, good job. And then the second part of the prayer is that Colossians, you could do better. <laughs> I want us to be careful how we understand how I'm using you could do better. I'll explain that. I do not mean by performing at a higher level. I mean by doing better at doing something else more and more that has little to do with our performance. That'll be later. So this prayer is a wonderful way to introduce the, the book of Colossians, to introduce this sermon series. Paul's purpose in, in writing is to declare the, the glories of the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and to encourage believers to grow toward Christian maturity in the power of Christ Jesus given to them. This prayer has two parts, thanksgiving for the Colossians' faithfulness. Paul saw in them that they were indeed living to please the Lord. And then secondly, Paul gives a petition. He asks God to grow the Colossians in living to please the Lord, to grow in a walk that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to the Lord. Now, before we dive into the letter and the prayer, I want to give a little background about the book, book of, of Colossians. And it, it's just important for us to appreciate the challenging context of, this, of these new believers in this new church in the small town of Colossae. They were being bombarded with false teaching and, of course, the pressures of a fallen world. That, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Might be the same context in which we find ourselves today. Bombarded with false teaching. There are just more platforms to be bombarded in our day. And standing against the pressures of this fallen world. Well, Colossae was located about 120 miles east of Ephesus in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor. Uh, once Colossae was a thriving economic center but before the Roman period, but had really fallen on hard times and declined. In Paul's day, it was a small town in the shadow of the larger city in that region, Laodicea. The Lycus Valley, which Colossae was located in the Lycus Valley, had a rather large Jewish population. That's important, especially when we dive into this, this false teaching that the Colossians were uh, facing. But the majority people group in the Lycus Valley and in Colossae was the Gentile nation. Paul was in prison, likely in Rome. Some think he might have been in Ephesus. The, the context really doesn't matter. But he was in prison. Uh, he wrote his letter about the same time as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians as well as to Philemon. If you remember Derek's series on Philemon, Philemon and Colossians are very much related, as is Philemon's. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians, there are parallels, there are things that are similar. 
And so these books are written at the same time, about 62 A.D. Now, the reference to Timothy in verse 1, we simply need to, need to see that Timothy was not necessarily a co-author, but he was probably Paul's scribe. And Paul states in Philemon, verse 22, that he actually intended to visit Colossae at, at some point. But before he did, before he made that visit, I guess he was anticipating getting out of prison he wrote this letter to them. So, so why did he write the letter to them? Well, Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. When we look at verses 6 and 7 of our text today, the Colossians learned the gospel from the faithful minister of Christ, a fellow citizen of Colossae, Epaphras. And so likely... Uh, Epaphras had traveled to Ephesus when the Apostle Paul was there during that three-year stint in that great city, came under Paul's teaching, was converted, and then Epaphras went back to his hometown and planted this church in Colossae. He preached, he taught the gospel, he organized this church. And after the church was organized, at some point, Epaphras came back to Paul in prison, brought a report about a dangerous false teaching that was circulating around Colossae and was posing a danger to the church there. As we look at verses uh, 4 through 7, it was threatening the saints in Colossae. And the nature of this false teaching is not absolutely clear but I want to suggest, and we'll look at this more when we get to chapter 2, but I think the best way to understand this false teaching is that it was, it was a syncretistic type of a teaching. And that is to say that aspects of this good old-timey paganism were probably combined with distorted views in Judaism, and it just made this syncretistic false teaching teaching. And we know because of the rather large Jewish population in Colossae that that supports that idea of exactly what this false teaching was all about, a blend of paganism and distortions of Judaism. More about that in chapter 2. And so Epaphras also reported to Paul the love and the spirit that the Colossians were demonstrating, verse 8. And so Paul took the occasion to encourage the saints in Colossae. You're doing a great job. In the face of false teaching and opposition from a fallen world. Way to go, Colossians. Their faith, love, hope were founded, these, these Christian virtues, in fact, the three chief Christian virtues, just think of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. Here it's faith, love, and hope. That they were founded on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and his gospel. The Colossians in verse 5 heard the word of truth, the gospel. They heard it, they understood, verse 6, the grace of God in the truth. And their lives reflected, their lives represented living out the truth of the gospel that had been 
brought to bear upon their hearts. And we'll see in the second part of this, this prayer that, that Paul prayed that they would continue to grow, that they would actually grow and mature in doing better in living out the gospel in the context of culture. And so the occasion for Paul's prayer and the, really the entire letter may have made some view Colossians as the most Christ-centered book in the Bible, and hence the title of this sermon series, The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. So with this background in mind, let's dive into the first part of this letter. Paul gave thanks to God for the report that he had heard about the Colossians as they lived out the gospel evidenced by faith, love, and hope, these Christian, these primary Christian virtues. In verse 8, they were, li- they were living in the Spirit, and therefore they were manifesting the fruit of the Spirit as they lived in this small town that was facing false teaching. Paul recognized in them genuine faith. Verse 4, your faith in Christ Jesus, as we studied in our previous sermon series on on salvation, God had graciously united these Colossian believers to Christ in saving faith. Thus, they were manifesting a life of faith. And Paul said, I recognize that, and I thank God for that in your life. Paul recognized their genuine faith. Paul recognized Genuine love in the Colossians, the love that you have for all the saints. Isn't that interesting, verse 4? He didn't say, I recognize the love that you have for God. He said, the love that you have for all the saints. Now, firstly, uh, the Colossians were loved by God. And because they were first loved by God, they had the capacity, the ability to truly love God and love others. But I find it interesting that Paul says your genuine love for one another is clearly manifested, is demonstrated in the midst of adversity. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that a lesson for you and me as we come together as a church family here? That when the world looks at us, yeah, I would hope that they would come to the conclusion that we love God, we surely do, but they first see our love for one another. A product of God's love for us. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I just wonder what their love looked like there in Colossae, serving one another, sacrificing for one another, encouraging one another. I bet it looks a lot like the love that we have for one another here at Covenant. And Paul recognized genuine hope because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, verse 6. Now, now later in verse 12, Paul, Paul will give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This virtue of hope was the focus of last Sunday's sermon 
the end of the salvation series as we looked at, at glorification for the genuine believer. They have hope and the false teachers and the demonic powers and whatever else is, is in this fallen world cannot rob us of that hope. It is guaranteed to us. We have an inheritance in heaven. That hope shows the confidence that Paul saw in those new believers in Colossae in the midst of intense persecution. Faith, love, and hope, foundational virtues of the Christian life, reasons to thank God. Here's an implication. It was a challenge for them to live faithfully. It's a challenge for us to live faithfully in our day. They face pressures. We face pressure. They needed encouragement. They got it from Paul. We need encouragement. Are we getting it from one another? I think we are. To sincerely say, so-and-so, I give thanks to God for the love of Christ I see flowing out of you in this situation. So-and-so, I give thanks to God for the faith that I see in you as you face this trial. So-and-so, I give thanks to God. You're in a tough spot. Your life looks bleak, but I thank God that I see hope, the hope of an inheritance. I want to challenge us. WWPP, what would Paul pray? Paul would pray, God, I thank you for the evidence I recognize in the lives of your believers as by your grace the gospel is fleshed out in faith, love, and hope and in all the other spiritual gifts. You don't know how a word of encouragement has literally changed my day. Let us be known where we see genuine Christian living, <laughs> when we see genuine fruit of the gospel being lived out in somebody's life, thank God and encourage that brother or sister with it. Now the second part. Paul gave thanks to God for the Colossians' faithfulness. He also petitioned God that they would actually do better that they would grow, that they would mature more and more in faithfulness. And I'm understanding faithfulness here in the context of this prayer as, as walking in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord. You, you, you notice what Paul says here? Fully pleasing to the Lord? You've got to be kidding me. Fully? That's what he says. That's what he prays. I mean, could the Colossians say, hey, thank you, Paul. Appreciate the encouragement. I agree with you. But that petition about me maturing and fully pleasing the Lord, you don't, you don't need to pray that. I, I've, I've got it. 
I've arrived at, at the goal of the Christian life, right? No, they couldn't say that, nor could we say that. Paul helps us see that for the believer, there is always room for improvement. Let me say it this way. There is always room for sanctification. We will never arrive at the goal, a life fully pleasing to the Lord. But we are called to grow and mature and strive in the power of the Spirit for that goal. And Paul tells us how to do it. Paul so shows us the essential thing to do in order to mature in a way that is fully pleasing to the Lord, verse 9. He shows us what doing better is. Paul's petition was directly related to uh, this threat of false teaching. Uh, the false teachers were offering a man-centered philosophy, man-centered knowledge and wisdom. And Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, verse 10. So uh, Kevin read from Exodus 31, 1 through 11. You may have thought, what in the world is the construction of the temple? What does that have to do with this prayer in Colossians 1? And I'll tell you what it has to do with this prayer in Colossians 1. Because here in verse 10, Paul prays specifically that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And in Exodus chapter 31, we read that Bezalel and Holiab, that they were filled with the Spirit of God and given ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship. In other words, these craftsmen were filled with everything that they needed. They were prepared. They were equipped. They were empowered to construct the temple, the, the tabernacle, just as God had prescribed that it be instructed. And Paul is using that same type of language here, saying, praying for God to fill those Colossians in the same type of way that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding so they would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and have the power to do it. That's Paul's point in this prayer. That's where Exodus 31 comes into play, to remind us that when God calls us to something, he equips us, he prepares us, he empowers us to do it. And so Paul uses this same be filled as Moses did in Exodus in Colossians 1, 9 through 10. That the Colossians would be prepared, equipped, empowered more and more with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So on the one hand, Paul said, good job, Colossians. You're doing well. I thank God for the evidence of the gospel in your life, in your behavior, how you love, how you hope, the faith that I see. 
Then on the other hand, Paul says, but you could do better. <laughs> There's plenty of room for you to grow, Colossians. You are walking in a worthy manner, but you need to grow in walking in a worthy manner. And I want to be clear in saying that doing better is not dependent on our ability, our performance, our strength. Let, 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 let me put it this way. Doing better is praying more. Doing better is asking God to fill us like those craftsmen in Exodus 31 so we will have the knowledge, the spiritual wisdom, the discernment, the power to do what God has called us to do. And that is his will is for his people to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the Lord's will for you and that's the Lord's will for me. And our job, our doing better is to be better at asking To be better at seeing our inability. To be better at seeing we can't perform at the standard God requires. To see that if living the Christian life is up to our doing, we will fail. But the Christian life is not up to our doing. It's up to God's gracious work. And therefore we ask God fill us. Give us all that we need. Do you, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Paul asked not that the, that the Colossians would do better, but asked that God would fill. You see? And, and, it, and Paul fleshes out what a worthy walk looks like. He, he prays for four things. First, bearing fruit. Paul prays the believers would keep on bearing fruit in every good work, verse 10. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says that we are saved for good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember Galatians, Paul says that those who are walking by the Spirit, that is to say those who are living by faith, not trusting in their own ability, but living by faith, receiving all that the Spirit has, they will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Galatians 5.22. So Paul says, Lord, I pray that you would fill them that they might bear fruit in every good work. That's one aspect of a worthy walk. Secondly, Paul speaks about increasing. Paul prays the believers would keep on increasing in the knowledge of God, also in verse 10. If you go back to verses 5 and 6, Paul gave thanks for this, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. So now in verse 10, Paul is asking God to increase that fruit that is produced by the knowledge of the truth of the gospel increasing in someone's life. 
Think of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. The seed of the gospel is broadcast and it falls on that prepared ground and what produces an abundant harvest. Being fruitful and increasing in the knowledge of the gospel, those two things are linked and tied together, uh, two sides of the same coin. That's what Paul is saying here. Bearing fruit is linked to knowing God, receiving the gospel. And then third, being strengthened, Paul, Paul prays, be strengthened with all power, verse 11. Spiritual wisdom and understanding that, that bears spiritual fruit is only by the gracious power of God. This, this petition really is so encouraging to us. Power is available for every believer to be strengthened and enabled to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in His sight. Do we get that? There is power for us to fully please the Lord, to grow toward that goal of fully pleasing the Lord. And then fourthly, being thankful. Paul, Paul asked God, the Colossians, that, that, that thankfulness, giving thanks, verse 12, would characterize their life. It's a walk of gratitude in Christ. Thankful over the fact that we've been qualified, Paul says, to share in the inheritance promised to all the saints of God. Paul borrows language here from the Old Testament, this, this, this idea of an inheritance of the promises of the covenant. And he applies that to the church in Colossae and to our church, Jew or Gentile, all who are saved in Christ. grateful for the inheritance that we have. So Paul prays the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would grow in walking in a manner that is, that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God. He prays that they would bear fruit that is a product of the knowledge of God, the gospel seeping into their lives and that they would rest and ask for the gracious power of God to live in a way that pleases the Lord and to live a life of gratitude over all that God has done. And then verses 13 and 14, that the whole prayer really is driven by these two verses and I'm not going to say much here because really the rest of Colossians unpacks these, these two verses. But, but Paul's prayer is rooted and founded and driven by what he declares in verses 13 and 14. Christ, who is preeminent over all things, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his kingdom. Paul's language reflects that that rescue operation that God did, redeeming Israel from captivity in Egypt. It points to a greater deliverance, Christ's rescue of God's people from the domain of darkness. And this deliverance is a redemption, a, a, a buying back of these people from sin and Satan and death at the price of Christ's own blood, that they might be forgiven of all of their sins. In fact, the rest of the letter just expounds upon verses 13 and 14, this, this supreme 
all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Paul's prayer is driven by that. How would Paul pray? Well, Paul prayed driven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, is that how we pray? I suggest to you that Paul gave thanks driven by the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would commend to you that Paul asked for the Colossians to mature in a manner of walk that is pleasing to the Lord, driven by the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lesson for you and me is that our praying should and must be driven by the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our living must be driven by the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we ask, along with the Apostle Paul, that you would make us thankful for the powerful work of your grace in our lives that enables us to believe, to love, to hope. And Father, we know that we have so much more room to grow in living a life that is pleasing to you. First, Father, I pray that you would impress upon us the understanding that your will is for your people to walk in a manner that is worthy of you, truly pleasing to you, and that we would ask much of you to enable us to do it. For it is all based upon your grace and your power. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.